king, the keys to the kingdom. Thank you, Vance, very much for that. He uh, he was mentioned a karaoke thing. He uh, was on a cruise. He and his wife and family uh, went on a cruise this past week. That's why we missed him on Sunday. And he said that they had a karaoke uh, concert place you could go and sing karaoke songs. And he went in there and looked at the list, and he didn't recognize any songs. And I said, that's because all of you know are songs from the Heavenly Highway, and they don't put that in the karaoke machines, right? Hey, if you've got your Bible or something that opens up a Bible, open it up to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. I'm starting a, a new series this morning. It's going to be a short series. Right now, I've only got three messages planned on this topic of don't give up. Don't give up. Uh, maybe the Lord will move in me to uh, do a few more on that topic of not giving up. But I thought it was uh, uh, related to where we are in the, in the new years, just uh, you know, there's a number of people that make New Year's resolutions. They, 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 they kind of put a peg or, or a stake in the ground, and they say, you know, from this point forward, I'm going to stop doing this or I'm going to start doing that. I read a, an article a few years back that says that most New Year's resolutions are kaput within the first week of New Year's. Uh, and so for, most people give up on their resolutions by, by that time. But I see a real connection with New Year's resolutions and with our spiritual life, uh, that special time of the year when we make this resolution that we're going to stop doing this or start doing that is, is often like our spiritual life. There comes a point 
sometimes when God moves in us to stop doing this or to start doing that, the difference is, is that in our spiritual life, we don't have to wait until January 1st. In our spiritual life, God grants us that anewness, that newness of, of, of relationship with Him any time, any time of the year, any time of the day, uh, any time of the month whatsoever. The truth of that is based in our grace from Him, the grace in our relationship with God, and that we get that fresh start. Uh, and so it's with that that I move on in this don't give up. Uh, don't give up on life challenges. Don't give up in our relationship with God. Don't give up on spiritual growth. And so that's going to be kind of the topic for the next few weeks. I'll take a break because I always like to have a Sunday for the sanctity of life Sunday. And so we'll, we'll break from this uh, topic uh, on that week, which is just, I believe, two weeks from, from today. Got to check the calendar on that. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see where God takes us in this. This morning, the title of this message is, Don't Give Up, God is on Our Side. You know, as I was talking with the kids about friends, those friends are on our side. I wonder how many of you could relate to that, having those friends that are on your side. I remember when I was in just grade school, right, uh, when somebody said that they were mad at you, usually the first thing you did was go out and see how many of your friends would be mad at them uh, so that we, they would be on your side, Right. And uh, because you knew they were going to get all their friends to go and be mad at you, and their friends would be on their side. So you wanted your friends on your side to be against their friends that were on their side. That's little kid stuff, right? We adults don't do that kind of thing anymore, hopefully. Hopefully we've grown out of that. But anyway, the, the point being is that no matter who you can count on your side, the very best person on your side is God. And of course, this is not in the elementary sense that we want God to be on our side and against whoever's against us. It's not like we can, yeah, you might have uh, Jimmy Joe, Jim Bob, but I've got God, all right? It's not like that. But in the sense of our spiritual growth, in the, in, in the, in the sense of our relationship with Christ, through Christ, uh, when we have, it seems like the whole world going against us, we can count on God being on our side. A secondary title to this scripture, to this message, might be this, a confident contrition, a confident contrition, because within our relationship with God, within knowing that He is always on our side, and having a confidence and a boldness in knowing that God is on our side, there also must be the opposite of that confidence of a humility, of being contrite, of being broken. Contrition means to be broken or meek, humility, understanding that He is on our side not because there's something great about us. He is on our side because that is the graciousness of God. And that's not because there's something meritable about me, but that it's all about Him and His favor and, and, and His merit on us. We need to be humble and contrite and broken in His presence and our relationship with Him. And, and that's what's so interesting to me, just to, to sidestep real quick, sidebar that. The Christian life is full of these kind of, and I don't want to call, uh, call them contradictions because that's a horrible term, but these, we'll call them paradoxes, oxymorons. Somebody said that an oxymoron is not a teenager with pimples, by the way. An oxymoron are these, these two opposing truths that come together and form one truth. The Christian life is one of boldness, but at the same time, humility. 
We're given this spirit of boldness and confidence, not of fear, not of timidity. That's what, that's what the gospel is all about. Because of the gospel of God, because of the righteousness of Christ covering us, we have this ability to go before God with boldness and confidence. But at the same time, we must have humility. We must have contriteness. We must have a, a brokenness, understanding that we're not able to be confident before Him because of our own accord, but because of God and His graciousness towards us. And so, without further ado, I want to read this little bit of Scripture, Micah chapter 7, verse 7 through 9, and then I want to set it into context for you. Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me and will bring me forth to the light, I will see his righteousness. Let's just pause a moment for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for your spirit being in this place your very presence, Lord, I claim that and I just pray that you would move in each and every single one of our lives as I look out on this group of people here this morning, understanding that it's not me or my words that change people's hearts, minds, lives, but it is you, it is your power, it is the power of your word. And Father, I just pray that truth on all of us, that none of us will leave this place in the same way we walked in here this morning. And it's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus, amen. And so I want to give you a little background real quick to just these, I know we just read three verses, and i got to set these three verses in context because what we just read is that confident contrition of Israel. Uh, what's happened here is that Israel has gone through a bad time in, in, uh, in their life, in their history with God. Micah, the prophet, has come and talked to them. He has prophesied, he has foretold the word of God, and they have responded with repentance and now you see their response, their understanding, their spiritual understanding of what has gone on in their life. And that's why they say, "What though I, will, uh, though I am in the darkness, God will bring me in the light. We're going to get to that. But Michael was a prophet preaching in Judea, Judah, during the time of three different kings in Israel. Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This is about 700 years before the life of Christ. So it's about 2,700 years ago. And the great political enemy of of Judah at this time in history is Assyria. Assyria is trying to attack them, Assyria is trying to take over them, and Micah the prophet actually sees Assyria destroy the northern kingdom, and Judah's the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, Assyria destroys and takes over the capital, that's about 722 BC. But the biggest problem for Israel and Judah is not Assyria, it's sin. And that's what Micah is going to get on to them about. You see, an army has, has nothing against God whatsoever. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find these kinds of stories. Particular to this time in history, there's a time when Assyria is camped outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And they're threatening to attack and to lay siege to Jerusalem. And in one night, God just destroys the entire army, like 185,000 troops in one night. God does that. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 19. And the message for the Israelites relates to us. 
the most dangerous enemy in our lives, the most dangerous enemy that causes us to give up is not an outside external enemy, but it is what comes from within us, that is particularly sin. What would bring Judah and Jerusalem ultimately to ruin was their sin. And so Micah is calling on God's people to repent and warning them of God's judgment and warning them of the sin in their life. In fact, just to touch a little bit on the context, uh, flipping through here, and you don't have to flip through here, but I'm going to look first at chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Here's what he says to them. He says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. And so talking about just the everyday Joe and Israel, they are laying in bed thinking of ways how they can steal from one another. They covet fields and they take them. That's, that's just the everyday Joe and Bob in Israel. That's the, that's the life going on in Israel at this time. But it's not just the everyday Joe and Bob. Next, he goes after the clergy, the pastors, the spiritual leaders. If you're following along with me in Micah chapter 3, verse 5, here's what he says. Thus, concerning, uh, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray. They chant peace while they chew with their teeth but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. And so essentially what he is saying is that you priests, you religious leaders, you're leading my people astray, you are preaching what is comfortable to preach, you're preaching what the rich persons want you to preach. That idea that the poor that have nothing to chew, they don't get a word from the Lord, only the rich do. Then it's not just the clergy, it's not just the everyday people that he goes after. Then Micah, through the Lord, really, through Micah, I mean, goes after also the businessman. Uh, if you're following along in chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, he says, I'll wait till you get there. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he says, Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales? And with the bag of deceitful weights, for her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And so, here you've got the everyday Joe and Bob, you've got the clergy, and now the businessman, the, the merchants, they're robbing the people of Israel. So you've got all kinds of evilness going on in the land of Israel. It was an evil day. And unfortunately for Micah, he had the unpopular job of going to the people of Israel and saying, listen, you are not right with the Lord, and you are wrong, you are sinful on a number of fronts. Here's another word he shares with them. This comes from chapter 4, verse 10. This comes from the mouth of the Lord through Micah. He says to them, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs for you now shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And so this is a great warning. Listen, if you don't turn from your ways, you're going to be exiled to Babylon. If you don't turn from your sin. Yet despite their sin, Israel could know that God was on their side. 
Well, how can I say such a thing? Well, I can say the same thing about myself. I mean, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, uh, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? But the question I must ask is this. Is God indeed for me? Is God indeed for us? In this scripture in Micah, is God really for the Israelites? Is God really for us? Let me just quickly confirm this idea. Yes, God is indeed for us. He is for us, but only if He is our God. And I want to be very careful in explaining this, because one of the things we have done in our American Christianity is cheapen what it means for God to be for us. The questions of this scripture, the questions of Romans 8.31, if God is for us, is God for us? Yes, if He is our God. He is not for us if we have unconfessed sin in our life. He is not for us if we have not confessed Him as Lord and Savior. He is not for us if we have not surrendered to Him. He is not for us if we have not forsaken all other gods and sworn allegiance to Him as the only God, the Father of Jesus Christ, who provided a way of salvation for us. To put it shortly, if I am not saved, God is not for me. If I have unconfessed sin that I am harboring in my life, there is a separation also between me and God. I'm not unsaved, but God is certainly not for me. God is at that point trying to get my attention like he was with the Israelites. Listen, you're my people, but I'm about to exile you because you've got sin in your life and you need to confess and you need to re repent. And I, I don't want to be too harsh with this because that doesn't mean God doesn't love you. He loves you enough to provide salvation. He loves you enough to send His Son to the cross, but He's not for you. He is against you when you do not have the Son of salvation. He is against you because we are against Him when we do not have His Son for salvation. I believe we face some trials and some tribulations that will make us want to quit, make us want to give up, that are not the result of our sins, However, we need to be sure of something, and this is why I'm going this direction this morning, is that we are a sinful people. And I can say that because I sin every single day. Sometimes multiple times a day. Whoa, right? Get that? Yes, sometimes, okay, almost every day. I sin multiple times a day. Let me just make that confession to you. I am a sinful person. And being a sinful person, I must make confession of that. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? But if there's no confession, is there forgiveness? Am I the only guy who's making this emphasis on sin? I was reading another pastor's message on this same subject. And I want to quote what he had to say. So if you don't like this, don't get mad at me. It was another pastor who said this. Why is every form of moral impurity rampant in our evangelical Bible-preaching churches? Why do the vast majority of Christians never introduce anyone to Christ? Why do the vast majority of Christians never disciple another person? Why do people laugh their way down the aisle to make decisions? He put that in quotes. Why are our churches loaded with people who want a part-time convenient weekend Christian experience and who show no serious interest in spiritual growth? 
Why do pastors have to twist people's arms to give, to serve, to get involved, and I would say even to come to church in the work of the ministry? Why are church splits so common? Why are so many professing Christians barren, empty, hurting, confused, and in spiritual bondage? Why is the world so utterly disinterested in what we have to offer? He would go on to say, I would say it's because sin runs rampant in the church. And we are giving up, giving up in our spiritual relationship, giving up in the spiritual challenges of life because we're trying to do it in our own power. I'm thankful for some Micahs around that that are still willing to talk about what's going on in the American church just like Micah did 2,700 years ago. So now when we ask a person, should, should we respond to Micah's preaching in some way? The question is not just how Israel should have responded, but how we should respond today to Micah's preaching. Because I am a sinner, and the church is in a great need of repentance and reform and cleansing. And what is the key for God being for us and not being against us is repentance and leaning into His grace. And I'm not cheapening grace. In fact, I want to do the, other, I want to do the opposite of cheapening grace. I want to un- make sure we understand how costly God's grace really is. We need to be careful of how we treat God's grace and not cheapen it. What do I mean by cheapening God's grace? Look at, back at our text, Micah chapter 3. Verse 11, and hear what the Israelites have to say. I'll wait while you turn there. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Micah chapter 3, verse 11. Her heads, in other words, the leaders of the land, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet... They lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Essentially, what Micah through or what the Lord through Micah is saying is Israel's like, well, we can do whatever we want, because if God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, God is for us. But not if we are cheapening the grace of God that was poured out through the blood of Christ on the cross. Grace is unearned. It is an unmerited gift from God, but it should not be treated so cheaply. I stumbled upon a guy that I had never heard of in a bookstore uh, several years ago. Uh, He's a German theologian. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now understand, several years ago when I stumbled upon his book, I didn't know he was kind of a big deal. I mean, people have heard of this guy. There's been a lot of books written about him. But he had this book called The Cost of Discipleship. I picked it up. It was on discount. I took it home. I started reading. I just devoured that book. But he had a lot to say about cheapening grace. And I want to encourage you to read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This guy was hardcore. He was put to death, hung in a German Nazi prison, uh, Nazi camp uh, for two reasons. A, He would not bend his theology to the theology of the state church in Germany at that time. And two, he took part in an assassination plot on Adolf Hitler uh, in 1945. So kind of a hardcore dude. But listen to his thoughts about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, And cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. 
He goes on to say this. This is what we mean by cheap grace. Let the Christian rest content with his worldliness. Let him be comforted and rest assured in his possession of grace. For grace alone does everything. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolations of his grace. The only man, he goes on and says this, the only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Jesus Christ. Cheap grace was rampant in Micah's day. That's what we just read about in Micah chapter 3, verse 11. They were doing whatever they wanted and saying, well, God is for us. I, I, I don't want to go so far as to say that it's running rampant today, but i got to wonder if this has something to do with the powerlessness of the American church. And I know that might hurt a little bit, but when church becomes an activity, when church has become just something that we take part in once a week, instead of the body of Christ that we are a living and active part of every single day of our life, you got to wonder about the powerlessness of the church. This is not just something that we attend. This is supposed to be the body, the fellowship of and through Jesus Christ. And you may be saying, well, what does this have to do with giving up? I'm getting there. This is the crux of the message. Don't give up. God is on our side. If we will lean into costly grace. I want to give you three thoughts very quickly of what it means to lean into the costliness of grace. The first one is this, the acceptance and brokenness of being a sinner. That's the costliness of grace. You see, cheap grace doesn't want to intensify that thought that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Cheap grace wants to overlook any kind of sin in our life. Cheap grace wants to say, well, is that really a sin? Costly grace instead says, we need to talk about this. We need to look deeply into this. And we might be saying, why do we have to talk so much about sin? There's so many other big mega churches that are, you know, they're just talking about warm, fuzzy stuff. Because it is the biggest issue of our lives, whether we realize it or not. Sin separates us from God. Sin hinders our prayers to God. Sin hinders our spiritual growth. Sin is what sent Jesus to the cross to die. And if we are unwilling to deal honestly with our sinfulness, our daily sinfulness, then we can... We cannot really expect the graciousness of God on our lives because that cheapens His grace when we're just like, okay, yeah, maybe I sinned, I don't know, right? Remember 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins. If I sin every day, then that means I need to confess every day. Well, what did I say? I openly admitted to you, I sin multiple times a day. That means I need to confess multiple times throughout the day, perhaps. And I'm not talking about groveling. We're not talking about paying some sort of penance. It's just an open, honest confession. I want you to go back to our original text, Micah chapter 7. And looking specifically at verse 9, let's just read that verse again. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Hold on, let me just pause and remind you. I told you, this is really, this is kind of the voice of Israel being spoken at this point. They have come back to the Lord. And this is what he says. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. There's no groveling in that. That's just an open, honest confession. I've sinned against God. And I'm going to wait for the punishment, the indignation, the chastisement, the, 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 the punishment that comes. Because you understand, with every bad decision, there comes a bad consequence. I told you last week, sometimes God takes me to the woodshed 
And some of you are like, what's the woodshed? I don't mean to chop wood. That hurts my back, we've discovered. So I don't do that anymore, right? I've sinned against the Lord. No groveling, just an open, honest confession, a realization that with grace, with costly grace, comes also God's chastisement. And we use that word chastisement, not judgment, because God is not, God, God is not sending us to hell for a sin. As much as He is saying, listen, I don't want you to do that anymore, I need to teach you a lesson. Sometimes it's very quick and easy. Sometimes it's just a reminder. Sometimes it's serious, though. Giving up in our life happens when we allow sin to do its work instead of grace to do its work. Cheap grace allows sin to run rampant, and sin separates us from God. And there's two things I want to say about that very quickly. It separates us from God in our salvation. Now, once we are saved, we are always saved. We're never separated from God again. And so when I say it separates us from God in salvation, I'm talking about you're born separated from God because we're born sinful beings. Okay? That sin is serious. We need to take care of that by coming to Jesus and confessing Him as Lord and Savior. And then we will not be separated. But once we have come to Him in salvation... We have this relationship going on with Him on an everyday, every kind of way basis. And then I sin. It severs that relationship. I don't lose my salvation, but it's kind of like if I were to sin against my wife, our relationship would not be the same, would it? I would have to confess. I'd probably have to pay a little penance, right? Send some flowers, things like that. No, she's a very gracious wife. But it's that same kind of idea, our human relationships, how they can be severed when we sin against one another. And we have to make it right. And it's not that God is menial and, and He is offended, but He is offended by our sin. And so we've got to get rid of it. We've got to accept and be broken about being a sinner. Number two, we must let grace do its work in us. We must let grace do its work in us. Cheap grace shows no brokenness. Cheap grace shows no contrite, broken humility. Cheap grace makes no confession. And cheap grace cannot do the work that costly grace does. Look again, verse 9. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Did you catch the rest of that verse? Until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness. When we lean into God, when we lean into the costly grace of God and allow costly grace to do its job through the recognition and confession of our sin, then it is God who brings us to the light. It is God who pleads our case. Verse 9 says, I will see his righteousness. But we understand that the gospel of Christ is that seeing God's righteousness means that our unrighteousness is replaced by His righteousness when we have surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior. Costly grace restores us in right relationship with God because we go to Him in confession and then we allow Him to plead our case. Hey, He's saved. He is a born-again believer. Sin is not sending Him to hell. He pleads our case and then He lifts us up. Cheap grace says you can lift yourself up. Cheap grace says you have the power within you to restore yourself. 
But costly grace says, I'm going to remain in the darkness until God brings me to light. Costly grace restores us. Costly grace brings us from the darkness of our sin to light. And when we have leaned into the costly grace of God, we can quote verse 8. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Man, that should be a gospel song. You know what? I searched on the internet this week. I could not find a gospel song. That should be a song. <laughs> when I fall, I will arise. When I sit in the darkness, He will be my light. It's not a song. It is closely related to Proverbs 24, 16, in which the writer states, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. Why? Because he's a righteous man. But remember, we are not made righteous by our deeds. We are made righteous when the righteousness of Christ replaces our unrighteousness. So that means, and remember, that seven times, that's, a, that's one of those indefinite kind of numbers. You remember that wonderful story where Peter comes to Christ and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times. And he's like, hey, I'm doing pretty good, right? And Jesus says what? No, 70 times seven. And then he goes into this beautiful parable about the forgiveness of a master against a servant. And the point of that whole thing is, is that God forgives us indefinitely. He also restores us indefinitely. And so seven times a day I may go down to the darkness of the cellar of sin, and seven times a day he will rise me from that. He, not me. That's what costly grace does. The difference between this and cheap grace is that sin is taken seriously. There's a, there's a, there's a fall. There is a real and terrible understanding that we have offended God. There's a time in awful darkness. There's a brokenness and, and humility and remorse as we bear patiently under the chastisement of God. And, and I'm making it sound like this is like a long period of time. It's not. Sometimes it's like 30 seconds. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Lord, I, I confess that. I repent. It restores us. I, I, believe, I believe in the immediate restoral of God. We don't have to grovel over sin. Because the punishment of sin was paid on the cross. <clears throat> and in the ashes of our regret, the flame of boldness before God should never go out. It will flicker because we have sinned before Him. But it will never go out. And when Satan taunts us that we are finished because of our sin, we lay hold onto Micah's word and say, Rejoice not over me, O enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, it is the Lord that will rise me to light. He will bring me forth to light, and I shall see His deliverance. We will not give up when we learn to wait upon the costly grace of God to lift us, lift us up from the mire of our sin. And believe me, we will not wait long. Number three, we must look to the Lord for our deliverance. We desperately need to turn our focus to the Lord for deliverance. This is what Israel has done here in response to Micah's message. How do we know this? If you read the remainder of chapter 7, there's this understanding of forgiveness and restoration of Israel by God. And in regard to the enemies, they are now afraid of Israel's God, meaning that there's been a restoration of Israel's identity into God. Uh, looking again at this scripture, verse 17. Verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17 specifically states 
they, that is, the enemies of Israel, shall be afraid of the Lord our God. Why? Because Israel is now back in union with God. Costly grace has done its job. Then in verse 18, hear the praises of Israel. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, pardoning sin? And then verse 19, you will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Repentance and restoration has occurred. Costly grace has done its work. Do you hear the boldness in their statements? Yet the humility of understanding it is not them, but it is God working in them and through them. Costly grace has done its work because Israel heeded the message of the Lord through Micah and turned to the Lord. They have been restored. They've been lifted from the mire of their sin. The question is, is will we do the same? The key to not giving up is where we fix our eyes, where we identify ourselves. Look back to verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7. The scripture says, Therefore, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the Lord of my salvation. My God will hear me. Such boldness in that statement, but also such humility. I will look, I will wait. Few believe that God is our only hope. If we believe that God is our only hope, then we will look to Him and we will wait on Him when we fail. We give up when we make the mistake of looking elsewhere. We give up when we make the mistake of looking into the world and the world's wisdom. We give up when we make the mistake of looking to the power that lies within us. Costly grace says, I will look to the Lord and I will wait on the Lord and I will allow Him to re restore me. So let us look to Him always, recognizing that He is the only way of salvation, recognizing that for God to be for me and not against me, I must be born again. I want to ask you this morning, can you say with all certainty that God is your God? Can you say that God is for you and not against you? Now understand, God being for us is not an inherited state of being. God is not for you because your parents went to church or your grandparents went to church. God is not for you because you come to a Baptist church. God is not for you because you attend church at all. God is not for you because you're an American patriot. God is only for you if the Son is your Savior and you have been covered by His blood. That's it. That is our only hope, is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to ask you that question. Do you know that God is for you? I want you to succeed in life, but success in life, not giving up in life, requires us to lean into God and His very costly grace. I want you to experience the costly grace of God that sent Christ to the cross. I want you to be broken by this costly grace, but I also want you to experience the confident boldness that comes through Jesus Christ that we can have before God. And I don't want you to give up in life. But I do want, to get, want you to give up to God. Give up your life to God. Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its impact on our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that you would move in us during this time of response. However, God may be talking to you, may be pulling on you, whatever decision he may be talking to you about making. 
And we just want to invite you to come forward this morning. If you need to talk, if you just need to pray, the benches are up here. You can pray by yourself or you can pray with somebody. Uh, we invite you. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your presence. And we just want you to, we want you to change us from the inside out. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. With you stand.